Oregon State and Washington State get a big legal victory over the weekend, and it makes rebuilding the Pac-12 a lot more likely. You are Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pac-12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights and soon-to-be Pac-2-dominated and beloved and loaded Conference of Champions. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, review. Please and thank you wherever you listen to or watch the show, which today is brought to you by PrizePix. Go to prizepix.com slash locked on and use code locked on for a first deposit match up to one hundred dollars prize picks daily fantasy sports made easy so we've had a lot of back and forth with this legal jargon with oregon state and washington state and controlling the pack two and who's on the board and who votes and everything like that so initially judge gary Libby ruled oregon state and washington state are the only voting members and then a different court put that on hold and said mm, no we're not so sure about that let's let's tamper that down and then another ruling came down over the weekend and that said that oregon state and washington state control the Pac-12, Pac-2, whatever you want to call it. So they're in control of the assets. Now, the context of the ruling is important because what the context of this ruling says is that Oregon State and Washington State, you get to control the financial assets, which make rebuilding the Pac-12 more feasible for 2025 and beyond, as I'll get to in just a moment, but they can't act any way that they want to. It basically said the simple version, the dumbed down version, so that we're not all stuck trying to you know, become uh, internet lawyers in a 36-hour period. What it says is that Oregon State and Washington State, you get to control all these hundreds of millions of dollars that normally would have been dispersed to the conference equally, right? To all 12 members would have been, I think, around $35 million or so. I don't know if anyone has an exact number, but it'd be in that sort of range. But you get to control what happens to it. But if you hog it all for yourselves, then the court is going to re-inject itself into the situation and say, no, okay, you can't be that mean. So we'll, we'll get to that later. But this means that Oregon State and Washington State have a really good chance of getting an outsized share of that money than they otherwise would have received. So under the stay or under the you know previous way that things were potentially going to go before this whole lawsuit came down, Oregon State and Washington State would have gotten an equal share with what the 10 schools the 10 departing schools would have received. Instead, the 10 departing schools are going to get some amount, but there's going to be a lot of money left over. And Oregon State and Washington State are in control of it. Apologies for that. Um, didn't know there was a landline in here. There it goes. Okay, anyway, sorry about that. Um, I'm visiting my grandparents for for a family reunion. So that's 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 what today's setup is. First time I've done a show from here, by the way. Appreciate you all being tuned in. Anyway, getting back to uh getting back to work here. Oregon State and Washington State are going to have a lot of basically extra money. Now, another thing that still has to be figured out in the courts is what happens with the debts and liabilities. Because I think what Oregon State and Washington State were also trying to make sure is, hey, if you're going to depart and you want to get you know X amount of dollars, you have to take on you know some of the liabilities that are tied to the conference as well. You can't take the revenue and just the liabilities. And so I think that for, for them to figure all that out is what's going to determine how much exactly they have. But the 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 rebuild element suddenly becomes very possible because if you've got a bunch of extra money left over, 
Well, now you can help teams facilitate exits from other conferences. So you could go to the cream of the crop of the Mountain West, who you now have at least a closer relationship than you did a few months ago, given the scheduling alliance and potential basketball merger in 2024 and 2025. Nothing has evolved on that front, by the way. But you could help facilitate those exit fees. You could help facilitate exit fees for teams from the American Conference if you wanted to go in that direction. And you could build the premier group of five conference in all of college football. Now, is that something Oregon State and Washington State automatically want to do? Not necessarily. It is certainly an option. And I think with this ruling, it becomes far more likely because now they're going to have access to a healthy amount of money. We don't know exactly how much but it's more than just an equal share for what the 10 departing schools are going to get. So if they're getting an outsized portion of that revenue, they could use that to pay off the debts and then try and rebuild the conference. If that's the direction that they wanted to go and they're in control because this ruling, and it doesn't look like the Washington state Supreme court is going to, to weigh in on the matter. This ruling says that the only voting members of the PAC 12 conference are Oregon state and Washington state. So they are now for the first time in quite a while in control of their own future. So that makes it a, it it is a big step. I'm I'm not trying to undersell that whatsoever. There are still more aspects of this, I think, that need to be worked out before we have a full vision or a full understanding what exactly these teams are are, are going to, or what these schools rather, are going to do. So that's the latest on uh, the legal front, which brings me to the mailbag, YouTube comments, or on Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore pack 12. DMs or mentions are, uh, wide open there. This is from Mark. Hey, Spencer, love the reporting this season. With the changing landscape, technically I'm not a reporter, but I get the point you're going for. With the changing landscape of conference realignment, does it make sense for Oregon State and Washington State to remain independent until the next big conference shuffle, even if it takes longer than two years? That is a fantastic question. And I think that is going to be a subjective one. I think you can make the case either way that Oregon State and Washington State could be set up best for success by trying to rebuild the pack or remaining what they are essentially are now, which are college football independents. And we know that independents are going to have an opportunity in the 12 team playoff to get into it. And tomorrow I'm going to have Carter Baines of Beaver Blitz on the show. And we'll talk about how Oregon state can be potentially a playoff team under Trent Bray going forward. But I think that for, for the bees and the Cougs, you can see a path in which they set themselves up for success in the next round of realignment because that has to be their ultimate goal, right? Long-term, if you're Oregon State and Washington State, you're trying to get into either the Big 12 or the ACC, or you hope that Chip Kelly's idea comes to fruition. And Chip Kelly had a a well-thought-out, shall we say, two-minute soliloquy on college football where he basically said, yeah, football should be independent from everything else like Notre Dame. You should have 64 teams at the Power 5 level, 64 at the Group of 5 level, and then it should be one giant media contract, and you can structure the schedules like they do in the NFL where you've got West Coast teams you play every year, and then you play the North, and you play the East, then you play the South, and you would rotate around. I think that's a great idea. The problem is I think the conferences have too much money, power, and influence that they are not going to be willing to just give up willingly, and there is no body that can force them to do it because of the situation that the sport has found itself in right now to allow for that to come to fruition. So if you're Oregon State and Washington State, I don't think you bank on that. I think you bank on what what you alluded to, which is the next round of realignment. you got to set yourself up to be targets for the Big 12 or the ACC, as crazy as it sounds, to expand and add you as members of their conference. Now, if that is something that's feasible, you can say, look, going the independent route gives you the most flexibility. 
maybe building the best G5 conference in the country. Maybe that's the best option. I think that's something that I'll, I'll probably have to explore a little bit here on, on the show and, and dive into a bit more. But you you can go either way. You can go either way. I lean towards the G5 option of building you know, a conference with teams from the American and teams from the Mountain West. And if you then build that conference, having a conference championship in the 12-team era is probably going to be sufficiently alluring to where it's you know going to help you remain uh, relevant nationally, right? Because they value the conference championship in the 12-team era. And it's got the auto bid for, you know, the highest ranked group five team. I, I think that that is a highly intriguing option, but it doesn't have to be the only option because it could limit you a little bit more, you know, schedule wise, whereas, you know, maybe they want to, you know, have, have things that are set in stone and solid, or maybe they'd rather, you know, kind of go at it on a year by year basis. I don't think we know the answer to that question for them just yet, but I think that that's, you know, the sort of question that they are certainly uh, talking about right now in, in Corvallis and Pullman, respectively. Another question came in about one particular individual who is involved with all of these items, but how involved is Oliver Luck and what exactly is he doing? What exactly are you doing with eBay Motors? I'll tell you what everything that you could possibly need passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. That's ebaymotors.com, eBay Guaranteed Fit, only available to U.S. customers, eligible items only, exclusions apply. All right, so when I look at Oregon State and Washington State, there is certainly clarity with this move, more of it. I don't think it's entirely clear what we're going to see from them uh, going forward. But Oliver Luck has reportedly for a while now been involved, who's currently commissioner of the FCS uh, newly minted United Athletic Conference. He's reportedly been uh, consulting for the PAC-2, and this question came in uh, from Patrick. Besides the insightful work of Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West commissioner behind the scenes, Oliver Luck was hired as a consultant by, by the PAC. Any word on his continued involvement with the PAC too? He's in an advisory role, is my understanding. I don't know how much he is advising them. I do know for certain that uh, George Klyovkov has not been involved. So, you know, how much Luck is advising them or what he thinks the, the best option is or how much influence that could actually have, we don't really know the answer to that question. Like, he's there. I don't know that he's a major player enough in a way to where he'd be a shoe in for the commissioner if they were to rebuild the Pac-12, which, you know, as I said, after this legal ruling appears to seriously be on the table. I think that if the Pac were to poach the best teams out of the Mountain West and get teams out of the American, you know, Mike Oresco is retiring from the uh, American Conference. He was the commissioner there. He built that league up after the Big East crumbled where he was the commissioner and did a really good job. Navarez has certainly got a, a really solid reputation and, and, and pedigree as well. 
to you know potentially be the commissioner of that conference. Luck would certainly be a, a candidate given his involvement with a whole bunch uh, of sports ma- sports management entities and just you know business ventures in the college sports and professional sports world. So I, I don't know that he's a name everyone needs to have at the top of their minds right now because until the conference decides, you know, and that's of course Oregon State and Washington State now, until they decide, hey, we want to rebuild. This 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 is what we're going to do they don't have to be looking for a commissioner right now. They're kind of their own commissioners, right? They're setting their own schedules the way that, you know, Liberty did before they joined conference USA and uh, the way that BYU did for a long time, the way that Notre Dame still does. I mean, that's essentially the world that they're operating in. Like it's really not that different other than, you know, branding and the television deal and when, you know, branding and television deal very much tied together. So apart from having a television deal, Oregon State and Washington State are no different than Notre Dame right now in terms of how they approach their season. Because Notre Dame has to, you know, set a schedule on a year-by-year basis. They do have some matchups that they, you know, schedule out ahead of time. They also have some protected matchups. They always play Stanford. They always play USC. But, you know, like uh, last year, they played Cal. They don't always play Cal. They play, I think, Clemson all the time out of uh, the ACC. So whereas Notre Dame's alliance of you know schools that they're going to play regularly is with the ACC for Oregon State and Washington State, it's just with the Mountain West. And so that's a viable way to build a schedule every year. Is it the best way to build a schedule? Maybe not. May, like maybe you could argue that you know building the best G- G5 conference you possibly can is the way that you're going to get all of that involved. But you know, here, here's the thing. If you're Oregon State, Washington State, thinking about, you know, bringing on somebody like Oliver Luck to be the commissioner of a new pack in 2025. And, and, and by the way, I should mention, just to be clear, a rebuilt Pac-12 doesn't start until 2025. That, that, that would be the timeline here. It would not be 2024. Everything is already set in stone for that. It, it's going to be, at the very least, a one-off independent season. There will be no conference championship game in the pack, and that's the way that it'll be. For 2025, it could be a different conversation there. So I, I think that for Oregon State, Washington State, you have to ask yourself, with the way they've been burned by commissioners in the past, do they want to go back to having one? Do, do they want to go back to having one? My light just fell. Give me give me, give me, me a moment here. But um, do they want to go back to having one or do they want to just go forward as as independents and say, well, we're, we're just going to set our own schedules. We're going to make it work uh, as as best we can. So I, I think that's a decision that they have to make. And it comes down to a matter of personal, personal preference. And again, I could see it either way. You know, if you look and go, boy, Larry Scott was a mess and George Klyovkov didn't work out either. What is having a commissioner ever done for us? On the flip side, having leadership can certainly have its benefits as it has for other conferences if you have the right leader in there. So that's kind of the decision that they uh, that, that they have to make. If you got any questions on that, as always, YouTube comments or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore Pack 12. Let's talk about Oregon State here because on the field, Oregon State is going to have a team in the Sun Bowl that uh, we'll talk about tomorrow with Carter Baines is is very different than the one they put on the field this year in many ways. However, their roster for next year is starting to take a little bit of shape. So they brought over they've brought over a couple of players from uh, the Colorado Buffaloes, the center and uh, running back Anthony Hankerson as well. But they brought in another player, Anthony Jones, who was a one-time Oregon Duck, one-time Indiana Hoosier, former three-star recruit from uh, the Las Vegas, Nevada area. I remember covering him when, you know, on, on my show, of course, over at Locked on Ducks when he was there. And he didn't play a lot. And I don't think he played a lot at Indiana. That's why he transferred to Oregon State. 
I I think that he's got some solid potential. I don't know if he could be, you know, what you consider an all-conference caliber guy. Of course, that threshold has been lowered substantially for 2024, of course. But I think that for for Oregon State, he's a guy who can certainly become a solid edge player. And with Andrew Chatfield Jr. gone, like that's a position of need. And so I like that Oregon State is going out and moving in that direction. You know, he was a three-star recruit, and, and the way that he looked coming out of high school as a true freshman when I saw him on the field at Oregon, I, I thought he looked solid. Like, I, I thought one day he could become a player for the Ducks. He, of course, you know, wasn't able to uh, find his way up the depth chart there. But I think that's somebody that, you know, could come in and as a third-year player is physically ready to contribute. He's been in the weight room for a couple of years at Power 5 programs and – I, I think that he's someone who, you know, isn't going to be exactly what Andrew Chatfield Jr. was, but I think he can be a, a solid player. So it, it's good. And I point this out before I get to Malik Murphy that to say that Oregon State has had some notable losses in in, in the transfer portal. You know, they've had their their kicker and a young freshman corner. And of course, they're two quarterbacks and they're losing offensive linemen as well. But Trent Bray is starting to make some moves in in a positive light. And I I think that's a good thing for Oregon State as they look to compete at the highest level they can for next year. Still got to figure out the quarterback, and they're looking to do just that with Malik Murphy. So he was spotted at uh, the Portland airport for a a visit with uh, with Oregon State. And Trent Bray, of course, was was there as well. I saw the picture floating around. It was like kind of secret take I, I i didn't take it i don't, I don't know it's okay whatnot but anyway this has been well documented anyway malik murphy is the backup quarterback from texas who filled in this year and won football games in the big 12 conference and if you're oregon state getting malik murphy to be your quarterback for next year i think that'd be a home run you know I, i've talked about the potential of adding ty thompson who's you know former five-star recruit and whatnot murphy i think would be a safer addition could you argue Thompson's got a higher ceiling? Yes, you absolutely could. But I've talked about this before with Oregon State. If they're looking at 2024, I think it has to be, and for Trent Bray as well, an all-in proposition in the sense that you're not trying to sell Oregon State fans and the rest of the college football world on, you know, hey, we're going to be good in two to three years. You've got to show that you can compete right now because the narrative is already trending against you in a big, big way. But if Oregon State comes back next year, and let's say they go 10-2, and they lose a game to Oregon, and they lose a game to, I don't know, like uh, Cal or Boise State or somebody like that, and they're inside the top 25, that kind of sends a clear message of, hey, we're not going to just roll over and die here. We're going to fight, and we're going to put up quality football seasons and a good team year in and year out. I think you've got to show that in year one. I think Trent Bray has got to show that in year one as a first-year, first-time head coach. You know, his salary is only $2 million, and I think that's reflective of Oregon State saying, hey, we want to go with you for continuity reasons. At the same time, if this turns out to be a situation like the one they had at Mississippi State where they promoted their in-house defensive coordinator and it's a disaster, we got to be able to move on and move quickly because you've already got a big perception problem in Corvallis, and you have to be able to you know assure not just your fans but your uh, alumni and the rest of the country and players and recruits as well that – hey, we're going to continue being competitive, even though Jonathan Smith and Aiden Childs and everybody have moved on to to Michigan State or elsewhere. So I I think that Malik Murphy from Texas, a guy who can come in and you know is is going to be able to succeed because you have seen, like assuming he's got enough tools around him, because when he has that at Texas, 
He wins games against Power 5 football teams. And, yeah, Ben Goldbranson's done that as well, but Murphy's got you know plenty more talent. I don't remember if Goldbranson's got uh, another year of eligibility. I know he's uh, uh, I know he's going to play in the Sun Bowl, and he's going to start. But, yeah, so he, he could be technically Oregon State's starting quarterback next year. He's still just a redshirt sophomore. But is that the option you want to go with? No. I, I think even though Oregon State actually had a worse record, this year than than they did last year with Cole Branson starting. I think it's pretty clear that DJ was an upgrade. Malik Murphy would be an upgrade in in that sense. And heck, I, I think he could even have a better season than, than DJU if they're able to get him. Because Oregon State's not going to be his only suitor. You know, he's a pretty hot commodity in the transfer portal as far as quarterbacks go. And I think that that would be a massive, massive get for Oregon State just for for their credibility and their ability to compete in 2024, Malik Murphy would be massive. But he's not the only quarterback whose name popped up on the transfer portal radar over the weekend. Do you know the name Malachi Nelson? Are you aware of who he is? If you are not, let me tell you a little bit of a story. Malachi Nelson was once a member of the USC Trojans. He has decided to put his name into the transfer portal. And he, along with Ty Thompson, have something in common. They are former five-star quarterback recruits who presently do not have a home or a place to start in 2024. And so these are guys who have not taken meaningful college snaps. Nelson has been with USC for just one year. Ty Thompson was at Oregon for three. Both have big size, big, big size. Thompson is six foot five. I think Nelson is around six foot five as well. Big dudes, big arms. I saw Malachi Nelson when he was in high school throw the ball live a little bit at at the seven on seven camp down in uh, Las Vegas in 2022. He can really spin it. He is a supreme athlete. He is twitchy, big arm big arm and he throws a really tight spiral and a good ball so usc looks like they're going to go into the transfer portal to get their uh, next quarterback and i think that that is the way college football often goes now not for everybody you know jj mccarthy was developed at michigan and jalen milrose developed at alabama but a lot of times big time programs will say "Mm, why go with a young guy and endure growing pains when you can just you know get someone who's proven right now and usc looks like they're going to go after will howard the kansas state quarterback who of course led them to a big 12 championship a season ago and then got uh, ultimately kind of semi benched this year for for avery johnson the freshman so i think that for for malachi nelson i don't know what which which schools he's going to yet it's just a name that you should have on your radar out there would he want to stay out west i don't know I, I, I don't know, have not spoken to him. Ty Thompson, same question. I don't know. But those are two guys that if they find the right offensive home, they are tremendous talents. They are tremendous talents, the sorts of which don't come along super often. If you can develop them and get them into your offense successfully, you can do a lot of great things uh, on, on that side of the football. So I think that for, for Nelson and Thompson, they're probably looking for places where they can go start. I don't know where that's going to be, but anybody who picks him up is getting a supremely, supremely talented quarterback. And I don't think he's someone that, you know, any pack schools necessarily have on their radar. I mean, I never count out Kenny Dillingham at Arizona state because he knows how to recruit quarterbacks that are talented in a big, big way. But I, I think that those, those are two names. I'm fascinated to see where they end up next year 
because if they find a spot where they can pop, they can pop in a big way. They need the experience, but there are plenty of schools like, you know, think of an Indiana that just hired uh, James Madison's head coach. You don't think they'd take a guy that caliber to start as, you know, uh, Ty Thompson be a redshirt junior and uh, Malachi Nelson would be a, uh, a true or probably I think he redshirted this year, redshirt freshman. I think they'd take a chance. So fascinating to uh, say the least. Let's go to the mailbag here. Once again, again, YouTube comments or X, both are options. X formerly known as Twitter. This question from Bud. Beginning in 2024, the opening round of the college football playoff will be played on the third weekend in December, basically winter. Given that, these four games will be hosted at the home of the highest-seeded teams, a la the NFL. The chance of inclement weather, rain, snow, and wind, is quite high, particularly in the north, and schools will be out of session. How will this impact playing conditions and attendance at these games? So before I answer that question, I am a staunch opponent of the 12-team college football playoff while also fully recognizing, I know this is going to bother some people, but I can hold two thoughts at once. It's really easy. Watch. There is an upside to the 12-team playoff. And one thing that I really enjoy about it is that you are going to have playoff environments on campus sites, not neutral site games, but you're going to have on-campus games. I think that's a great move, a great move. And no matter the environment, I think that the urgency and excitement that, you know, being in the playoff creates on a team's home campus, you're going to sell that place out. I don't think it's going to matter. Like if let's say, for instance, Michigan is a 10 and two team next year and they lose to, you know, Washington or Oregon and Ohio State and they're in the playoff and they're hosting a first round game against somebody else. You don't think those fans of Michigan are going to go? Because I do. I, I do. And I think that environment will be rocking. And, you know, Kids will be out of kids will be on winter break, and that is certainly an unfortunate element. I, I'm going to venture a guess that those kids that would be showing up if they were on campus for a home college football game are going to find their way back to school. I don't think you're going to have any problem selling out a stadium, no matter the weather, the conditions, or what you know, wherever you go in the country. I think you're going to have fans that'll want to show up to these games because it turns out. Here in these United States, we like football. <laughs> we like football a lot. And so given that reality, I, I think fans, you know, you give them a chance like that to play for a championship, I think they're going to show up. They don't have any problems with it in the NFL. Fans will bundle up and endure rain, wind, sleep, whatever. I, I, I think you'd see that. And, yeah, I think it could be really fun. I, I think the home games, home playoff games, I think that is the arguably the best part of the college football playoff. Those environments are going to be absolutely electric. Trio of quick questions here from Tyler, who likes to bounce around with the questions, which is okay. It's a college football show, but it's not like college football is the only thing I have any reasonable knowledge about or opinions on. He asked about Al, Al Michaels being removed from the playoff coverage, Justin Herbert being done for the season, and Brandon Staley's subsequent removal, and Aaron Rodgers potentially coming back. So I Rodgers is not going to play. I think it's all just kind of an attention scheme, frankly, like the whole idea that he was going to come back and play. The Jets are out of the playoffs. Rodgers is not playing. Al Michaels, I love Al Michaels. I have my whole life. He's one of my icons as a play-by-play announcer. I think he is outstanding. NBC taking him off of you know their playoff coverage, I understand it because Al Michaels is just getting a little bit older. 
Like there, there are a lot of great announcers out there and Al Michaels has been one of them for a long time, but you even saw with a guy like Marv Albert, you know, for the last couple of years, Marv Albert did not have his fastball. And I, I don't think Al's, you know, got his fastball the way that he did five, six years ago. So um, I don't know all the politics that went into that move, but, you know, from uh, a consumer standpoint, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world, even though it, you know, creates a headline. It's not, uh, it, you know, always super pretty with that. As for Justin Herbert and the Chargers, you know, as an Oregon fan, I root for Justin Herbert. I want that guy to succeed. And the Chargers organization stinks. And the fact that they kept Staley for an extra year after blowing a 27 to nothing lead and it just everything about that screamed. This is not the right. This is not the right guy. And everybody could see it. And it took the Chargers too long. And they finally cleaned house. I'm glad they make those moves. And I, I bring this up to tie it back to college football for a moment. When you have a coach who is clearly not the right guy, if you're willing to just sit around when there have been clear and obvious signs that he is not someone who's going to lead your team to where you want the program to go, you got to be willing to pony up some cash and just and just cut ties with him. And sometimes you need to fully clean house the way the Chargers did with their with their GM. Because if you just if you just continue to pursue mediocrity, that's what you're gonna get. And on the coaching front, that's what the Chargers have consistently gotten. They go cheap and they that's the way the product often looks on the field. And I think that can be reflected in college football uh in in many areas as well. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.